There's a lot of information out there about the best foods to help us lose weight, to prevent cancer, fight inflammation, the list goes on. In fact, for everything about our health we try and improve, there's someone out there with a new theory on how to do it. But what does the science say? Welcome to the Nutrition Facts Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greger, and I'm here to give you the evidence-based approach to take the mystery out of the best way to live a healthier, longer life. Today, it's saturated fats. Go online, there appears to be controversy over whether or not saturated fats are bad for you. Is butter back or not? Let's see what the science says. Time magazine famously exhorted people to eat butter, no doubt selling lots of magazines, but perhaps selling the public short. They followed up with an article doubling down, saying that the case for eating butter just got stronger. Based on this study, a systematic review and meta-analysis of butter consumption, pooling all the studies, each daily serving of butter was associated with only a 1% higher risk of death. Wait, this is the study making the case stronger to eat butter? Uh, further, the study suggests that swapping like a spoonful of oil in place of butter every day would drop the risk of diabetes 8%. Thus, even with an absence of major health associations in the present investigation, healthier alternatives may be available. Uh, but a 1% increase in risk is pretty tiny. I mean, why didn't they find a larger effect? Well, I mean, it is just a tiny part of people's overall diets. It's illustrative to review the candy literature. The National Confectioners Association is fond of contracting with scientists for hire like Exponent Incorporated, infamous for shilling for big tobacco and chemical companies, encouraging people to eat candy every day in moderation, you know, like 15 to 25 jelly beans a day. Parents who restrict foods in an attempt to moderate a child's intake of calories are just going to make their kids fat. See, parents use coercive practices to limit children's access to palatable, energy-dense, or low-nutrient foods. Uh, parents have the gall to tell their kids when, how often, or how much candy can be consumed. Uh, don't they know butter scotch is back? See, evidence suggests that candy is not associated with adverse health effects. Don't believe me? Here you go. Ten thousand kids surveyed asked if they'd eaten candy within the last 24 hours compared to those who said no, and they conclude that candy consumption was not associated with adverse health parameters in children or adolescents, and this a study in which authors declare no conflicts of interest. Uh, I mean, yeah, it was a study about candy funded by the candy industry, but no conflicts of interest here. Uh, do you see how with such a blunt instrument it would be hard to tease out the specific health effects of candy. But look, we don't need a study, since we already know what candy is. It's candy! It's mostly pure sugar. We already eat too much sugar. We don't need more. Uh, you don't need to pay off researchers to come up with a study like this. We already know what butter is. It's butter. It's mostly pure saturated fat. We already eat too much saturated fat. We don't need more. Anyway, it gets even crazier. Candy consumers were less likely to be overweight and obese than non-candy consumers. So hey, maybe the candy company was right. Pass the peeps. Is candy eating really a way to control body weight? Who can name me an alternative? 
alternative explanation of why obese children eat less candy. Right, reverse causation. Perhaps it's not cutting down on candy that led to obesity, but rather obesity leading to cutting down on candy. In other words, the reported candy consumption reflects the consequences of obesity, not the cause, just like people with heart disease may cut down on butter, right, clouding the association. And remember, it was reported candy consumption, which brings up the specter of reporting bias. In other words, overweight kids may guiltily underreport their intake of candy to a greater extent than do those of normal weight. I mean, otherwise, what would the implications of such a finding be? Uh, do we want to randomize kids to eat more candy to see if it makes them lose weight? I mean, it's doubtful that any ethical committee would be happy about that kind of proposal. But you don't know until you put it to the test. Feed folks extra candy or peanuts, the same number of extra calories, and surprise, surprise, those that ate all that extra candy gained more weight. But what about that interventional trial showing that candy can improve ADHD symptoms. If you're the Mars candy bar company, and you want to fund a study showing candy bars help kids focus, what would you do? The parents were sent a formal letter instructing them to send their kids to school hungry without breakfast, and then gave them a candy bar, or basically nothing, an aspartame beverage, and what do you know? Feeding kids something rather than nothing enhanced their ability to stay on task. That reminds me of the famous Frosted Mini Wheats ad, clinically shown to improve kids' attentiveness by nearly 20%, with the really fine print explaining that this was compared to kids that ate nothing at all. Butter has been put to the test, too. Give people a single meal with butter, and you get a boost of inflammatory gene expression within just hours of consumption, significantly more than the same amount of fat in olive oil or particularly walnut form. You can randomize people to foods made with all sorts of different fats, and butter was shown to be the worst in terms of LDL cholesterol. Uh, yeah, but these were short-term studies. It's not like you can randomize people to eat or avoid butter for years unless they're locked up in a mental hospital, where by switching diets you can raise or lower their cholesterol and cut coronary events by about 40%, though they also cut down on meat and eggs, so it wasn't just butter. Yeah, but it's not like you can get a whole country to cut down on butter. Oh, but you can. A 75% drop in butter consumption in Finland helped create an 80% drop in heart disease mortality, which was driven largely by the countrywide drop in cholesterol levels, which was largely driven by the countrywide dietary changes to lower saturated fat intake, like the move away from butter. The bottom line is that researchers have put it to the test. Randomized controlled trials involving more than 50,000 people, and the more you decrease saturated fat content, the more your cholesterol drops, the greater the protection. Lifestyle advice to all those at risk for cardiovascular diseases to lower the risk of our number one killer of men and women, population groups should continue to be advised to permanently reduce their saturated fat intake. The American Heart Association got so fed up with industry attempts to confuse people, they released a presidential advisory in 2017 to make it as clear as they could. The main sources of saturated fat to be decreased include butter. Next up, 
we look at the reason those eating plant-based diets have less fat buildup in their muscle cells and less insulin resistance. The association between fat and insulin resistance is now widely accepted, so-called ectopic fat accumulation, the accumulation of fat in places it's not supposed to be, like within our muscle cells. But all fats don't affect muscles the same. The type of fat, saturated versus unsaturated, is critical. Uh, saturated fats like palmitate, found mostly in meat, dairy, eggs, cause insulin resistance, but oligate, found mostly in nuts, olives, avocados, may actually improve insulin sensitivity. What makes saturated fat bad? Saturated fat causes more of those toxic breakdown products and mitochondrial dysfunction, increased oxidative stress, free radicals, inflammation, causing a vicious cycle of events in which saturated fat-induced free radical causes dysfunction in little power plants within our muscle cells, which cause an increase in free radical production and impairment of insulin signaling. Fat cells filled with saturated fat activate an inflammatory response to a far greater extent. This increased inflammation, along with eating more saturated fat, has been demonstrated to cause insulin resistance through free radical and ceramide production. Saturated fat has also been shown to have a direct effect on skeletal muscle insulin resistance. Accumulation of saturated fat increases the amount of diacylglycerol in our muscles, which has been demonstrated to have a potent effect on muscle insulin resistance. And it doesn't matter if the muscle in our blood, excuse me, and the fat in our blood comes from our own fat or from their fat. You can take muscle biopsies from people and correlate the saturated fat buildup in their muscles with insulin resistance. While monounsaturated fats are more likely to be detoxified or safely stored away, saturated fats create these toxic breakdown products like ceramide that cause lipotoxicity. Lipo meaning fat, as in liposuction, and toxicity. This fat toxicity in our muscles is a well-known concept in the explanation of the trigger for insulin resistance. I've talked about the role of saturated and trans fats contributing to the progression of other diseases, like autoimmune diseases, cancer, heart disease. They can also cause insulin resistance, the underlying cause of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. In the human diet, saturated fats are derived from animal sources, while trans fats originate in meat and milk in addition to partially hydrogenated and refined vegetable oils. That's why experimentally shifting people from animal fats to plant fats can improve insulin sensitivity. Insulin, insulin sensitivity was impaired on the diet with added butter fat, but not on the diet with added olive fat. We know prolonged exposure of our muscles to high levels of fat leads to severe insulin resistance, with saturated fats demonstrated to be the worst. But they don't just lead to inhibition of insulin signaling, the activation of inflammatory pathways, and the increase in free radicals. They cause an alteration in gene expression, leading to a suppression of key mitochondrial enzymes like carnitine palmitoyltransferase, which finally solves the mystery of why those eating vegetarian have 60% higher expression of that fat-burning enzyme. They're eating less saturated fat. So do those eating plant-based diets have less fat clogging their muscles and less insulin resistance too? Well, there hasn't been any data available regarding the insulin sensitivity or inside muscle cell fat of those eating vegan or vegetarian until now. Researchers at the Imperial College of London 
compare the insulin resistance and muscle fat of vegans versus omnivores. Now, those eating plant-based diets have the unfair advantage of being so much slimmer, so they found omnivores who were as skinny as vegans to see if plant-based diets had a direct effect, as opposed to indirectly pulling fat out of the muscles by helping people lose weight in general they found significantly less fat trapped in the muscle cells of vegans compared to omnivores even at the same body weight. They found better insulin sensitivity, better blood sugar levels, better insulin levels, and, excitingly, significantly improved beta cell function, the cells in the pancreas that make the insulin in the first place. They conclude that eating plant-based is not only expected to be cardioprotective, helping prevent our number one killer heart disease, but that it may be beta-protective, beta-cell-protective as well, helping also to prevent our seventh leading cause of death, diabetes. Finally today, we ask how might Big Butter design a study to undermine global consensus guidelines to reduce saturated fat intake? Where did these consensus guidelines to dramatically lower saturated fat consumption come from? From literally hundreds of metabolic ward experiments, which means you don't just ask people to change their diets, you essentially lock them in a room for weeks if necessary and have total control over their diet. You can then experimentally change their level of saturated fat intake however you want, and see the corresponding change in their cholesterol levels. And the results are so consistent you can create an equation, the famous Hegstead equation, where you can predict how much their cholesterol will go up based on how much saturated fat you have them eat. So if you want your LDL cholesterol to go up 50 points, all you have to do is eat like 30% of your calories, saturated fat. When you plug in the numbers, the change in cholesterol shoots up right as predicted. The experiments match the predictions. In fact, you can do it at home with one of those home cholesterol testing kits. You know, eat a stick of butter every day, watch your cholesterol climb. Not rocket science. And look at this. This was 1965. We've known about this for 50 years. They even keep calorie intake the same. Increases in saturated fat intake are associated with highly significant increases in LDL bad cholesterol. Now, your good cholesterol goes up a bit too, but that increase is smaller than the increase in bad, which would then translate into increased heart disease risk overall. So if you, you know, feed vegetarians meat even just once a day, their cholesterol jumps nearly 20% within a month. Uh, you know, to prevent heart disease, you ideally we need to get a total cholesterol under 150, which you can see these vegetarians were, but then even just once a day with the meat, and their cholesterol shot up 19%. But the good news is that within just two weeks of returning to their meat-free diet, their cholesterol dropped back down into the safe range. Now note that their HDL good cholesterol hardly moved at all, so their ratio went from low risk of heart attack to high risk in a matter of weeks with just one meat-containing meal a day. And indeed, randomized clinical trials show that dietary saturated fat reduction doesn't just appear to uh, reduce cholesterol levels, but subsequent cardiovascular events like heart attacks as well. So we have randomized clinical trials, controlled interventional experiments. These are our most robust forms of evidence. Right? So no wonder there's a scientific consensus to decrease saturated fat intake. You'll note, though, that the y-axis here is not cholesterol, but change in cholesterol. That's because everyone's set point is different. You know, two people eating the same diet, the same amount of saturated fat, the same number of uh, chicken nuggets a day, 
can have very different cholesterol levels. One person can eat 10 chicken nuggets a day and have a LDL cholesterol of 90. Another person can eat you know, 10 a day, could start out with a LDL of 120. It depends on your genes. But while our genetics may be different, our biology is the same, meaning the rise and drop in cholesterol is the same for everyone. So, if both folks cut out the nuggets, the 90 might drop to 85, whereas the 120 would be expected to drop to 115. Right? Uh, wherever you start, we can lower our cholesterol by eating less saturated fat, but if I just know what your saturated fat intake is, how many nuggets you eat, you know, I can't tell you what your starting cholesterol is. All I can say with certainty is that, look, you eat less, your cholesterol will likely improve. But because of this extreme inter-individual variation, this wide variability in baseline cholesterol levels for any given saturated fat intake, if you take a cross-section of the population, you can find no statistical correlation between saturated fat intake and cholesterol levels, because it's not like everyone who eats a certain set amount of saturated fat is going to have over a certain cholesterol. So there's like three ways you could study diet and cholesterol levels controlled feeding experiments, free-living dietary change experiments, or cross-sectional observational studies. Right? Well, as we saw, there's a clear and strong relationship between change in diet and change in serum cholesterol and the interventional designs. But because of that inter-individual variability, in cross-sectional designs you can get zero correlation. In fact, if you kind of do the math, that's what you'd expect you'd get. In statistical parlance, one would say a cross-sectional study doesn't have the power for detecting such a relationship. Uh, thus, because of that variability, these kinds of observational studies would seem an inappropriate method to study this particular relationship. So since diet and serum cholesterol have a zero correlation cross-sectionally, an observational study of the relationship between diet and coronary artery disease incidence will suffer from the same difficulties. So again, if you do the math, observational studies would unavoidably show nearly no correlation between saturated fat and heart disease. These Prospective studies can be valuable for other diseases, but the appropriate design demonstrating or refuting the role of diet in coronary heart disease is a dietary change experiment. And those dietary change experiments have been done. They implicate saturated fat, hence the lower saturated fat guidelines from basically every major medical authority. In fact, if we lower saturated fat enough, we may be able to even reverse heart disease, opening up arteries without drugs, without surgery. But wait a second. Let's put our big cheese and chicken hat back on. Observational studies would show no correlation, mathematically could show no correlation. We've known since 1979 that observational studies simply don't have the power to show the relationship. Bingo! All we need now is a friendly researcher. How about Ronald M. Krauss, funded by the National Dairy Council since 1989, also the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, as well as the Atkins Foundation. Perfect. Then you just combine together all the observational studies that don't have the power to provide significant evidence, and what do you know? No significant evidence was found. This uh, 2010 meta-analysis was basically just repackaged for 2014 using the same and similar studies. As the chair of Harvard's nutrition department put it, their conclusions regarding the type of fat being unimportant or seriously misleading should be disregarded, going as far as suggesting the paper be retracted, even after the authors corrected a half dozen different errors. Uh, but it's not like they falsified or fabricated data. They didn't have to. They knew beforehand the limitations of observational studies. They knew they'd get the you know, right result, and so they published it, right? helping to 
neutralize the negative impact of milk and milk fat by regulators and medical professionals. And it's working, brags the dairy industry. Perceptions about saturated fat in the scientific community are changing. This is a welcome message to consumers who may be tired of hearing what they shouldn't eat. They don't have to convince consumers, just confuse them. Confusion may be easily misused by the food industry to promote their interests. It's like that infamous tobacco industry memo again. Right? Doubt is our product. Doubt is our product, since it's the best means of competing with the body of fact that exists in the mind of the general public. They don't have to convince the public that smoking is healthy to get people to keep consuming their products. They just need to establish a controversy. Some science say it's bad, some science say it's not bad. Conflicting messages in nutrition cause people to become so frustrated and confused they may just kind of throw up their hands in the air and eat whatever they want, which is exactly what saturated fat suppliers want, but at what cost to the public's health. We would love it if you could share with us your stories about reinventing your health through evidence-based nutrition. Go to nutritionfacts.org forward slash testimonials. We may share it on our social media to help inspire others. To see any graphs, charts, graphics, images, or studies mentioned here, please go to the Nutrition Facts podcast landing page. There you'll find all the detailed information you need, plus links to all the sources we cite for each of these topics. For recipes, check out my How Not to Die cookbook. It's beautifully designed, more than 100 recipes for delicious and nutritious meals. And all proceeds I receive from the sale of all my books goes to charity. NutritionFacts.org is a nonprofit, science-based public service where you can sign up for free daily updates on the latest in nutrition research via bite-sized videos and articles. Everything on the website is free. There's no ads, no corporate sponsorship. It's strictly non-commercial. I'm not selling anything. I just put it up as a public service, as a labor of love, as a tribute to my grandmother, whose own life was saved with evidence-based nutrition. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Facts. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greger.